Namaste to my viewers around the world. Today, my guest is Tom Quiggin. For those of you who don't know him, he's a well-known author, speaker, public intellectual, and investigator, intelligence investigator on radical Islam. Welcome, Tom. Good morning, Rajiv, and thanks for inviting me to your show. So, uh, Tom, for the benefit of those who don't know uh, a whole lot about you, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and why you're qualified to be engaged in this conversation we're going to have today. Well, in my very young years, I was in the military and I did stuff like anti-submarine warfare and search and rescue uh, operating in the world of heavy helicopters. But after that is where it sort of got a little more interesting. I spent 10 years in the intelligence branch of the Canadian forces and got to go to some interesting places like Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, Albania, Eastern Russia, uh, Poland, Belarus, and the Bosnian experience in particular, having been there during the height of the Yugoslav war, was quite searing in the sense that I saw how a country like Yugoslavia, which wasn't really all that bad, uh, got torn apart by the voices of extremism, extreme left, extreme right, and of course the radical Islamists uh, coming out of Bosnia, aided in large part by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. And that was sort of the start of a process. Uh, later, when I left the military, I worked for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in their national security section, doing investigations into terrorism and also into uh, judges and members of parliament, which was interesting. Uh, testified in court on a number of occasions in uh, terrorism-related cases in both criminal court and in the Federal Court of Canada. And for the last seven or eight years, I've just worked uh, solely on the voices of extremism, particularly in North America, with a focus on Canada, the USA, and looking at primarily groups uh, such as the Muslim Brotherhood, Hizbut Tahrir, and uh, increasingly, of course, the role of the Iranians in North America as well. Excellent. Well, that's quite a background. Uh, so with this background, and you also looked at the issues in Kashmir, the terrorist Islamic issues and the history of why, why that's happening. Yeah, it's almost impossible uh, to ignore Kashmir if you're going to study modern day Islamist terrorism. Many of the people involved uh, come from that area. Many of the folks who maybe don't come from there, but carry out terrorist actions in the name of the Islamists are actually referring to that. So for instance, here in Ottawa in Canada in 2004, we arrested a young fellow by the name of Momen Kawaja. He was involved in a major international plot uh, where he and some colleagues in the United Kingdom were going to blow up a shopping mall in the United Kingdom. But what was interesting, their point of radicalization, their point of discussion and where they wanted to take revenge was all based around Pakistan and around Kashmir. So if you're looking at modern day Islamist terrorism, it's almost impossible to sort of ignore Pakistan, the influence there, as well as uh, how it's playing out in Kashmir. So, yeah, it's, it's a critical area. If we look at Islam globally, there seems to be a lot of infighting also. So can you give uh, your analysis of why in the last several decades suddenly there's a rise of global Islam and many rival groups fighting for uh, supremacy within global Islam, why did it suddenly become a problem? Yeah, this is the sort of thing you could write several books on, but uh, I'll take a bit of a risk here and overgeneralize. But to be very broad, to overgeneralize, there's sort of two large factions exist within the world of Islam right now. And that's, you know, 1.4, 1.5 billion people, something like that. And on the one hand, you've got modernists or humanist Muslims. They want to take Islam uh, keep it as a faith, 
modernize it, weld onto it human rights technology, and then drive this thing forward into the future as a modern faith. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got uh, a very large, very powerful, very well-funded group who we broadly call Islamists. And what they want to do is they want to take Islam and have it not as a religion, but as a total system. In other words, they want to turn it into political Islam, uh, where Islam will be responsible not just as a faith, but also as a political system, a social system, a financial system. Uh, every form of human organization you can think about it, they want Islam to take over that. So if, again, at the risk of overgeneralization, a lot of this gets kind of started in the 1880s, but it gets really rocking in about 1928 when a young fellow by the name of Hassan al-Banna started the Muslim Brotherhood. And for him, he says, look, Islam is the solution. No matter what's your question, no matter what's your problem, Islam is the answer. And he was also the fellow that said it is the nature of Islam to dominate all other faiths and all other systems. That spread like wildfire through much of the Middle East. And of course, later it would spread into Southeast Asia and South Asia as well. So in South Asia, you see guys like El Madudi uh, in 1948 says much the same thing as Albana. Uh, he says Islam should destroy all other states and we should go back to their sort of mythical caliphate. So within, within Islam right now, there's this huge struggle between those who want to drive it forward in a sort of modernist way, and those who really want to drive it backwards, but as a political system. And I would argue right now that the largest number of people probably support the former, but the folks who have the money, the folks who have the ear of the politician, the folks who are driving the process the most are the Islamists, those people who are in favor of political Islam, and they're spreading around the world. So just for instance, the Muslim Brotherhood by itself uh, I took a chunk of time out of my life uh, a couple of years ago and did a study on where is the Muslim Brotherhood around the world? And the answer is they're in about 85 different countries wow. around the world with permanent, fixed, regularized institution. I don't mean some imam in some country somewhere says he's brotherhood. And when I say that they're in a certain country, that means they have a permanent mosque, a permanent cultural center, a charity and that sort of thing. So yeah, they're in about 85 countries around the world, and that's growing quite rapidly right now because groups such as ICNA in America, the Islamic Circle of North America, are pushing heavily into the Caribbean basin, into Central America and South America as well. So that number will go up uh, fairly soon. So, so you mentioned a Muslim Brotherhood and they are global. What is their history of presence in North America? When did they come and how is that movement and how visible is it and what are they up to? Now, I went back and I tried to find when is the first formal structured Muslim Brotherhood presence in North America. And it seems to be about 1958. Uh, a guy by the name of Ismail Farouki uh, left what was then the Palestinian governate, came to Montreal in Canada in 1958, stayed here till 1967, set up a mosque, got a cultural center going, got a number of study centers going. And then interesting enough, he moved to Philadelphia and he started, he started something called IIIT, the International Institute of Islamic Thought. And that has de facto become the Muslim Brotherhood's primary think tank in North America. And it's a also an organization that has influence around the world, including uh, like Matahir, the former uh, Prime Minister of Malaysia was a member of this thing for a while. So it's got a global influence. And IIIT, by the way, were the folks that brought you the idea of Islamophobia. Those are the folks that popularized it and put it into the mainstream in North America. So that was kind of the early days, the start. 
Uh, things got going a bit in the 60s and 70s, but they struggled quite a bit in the mid 1980s. However, that's when the the numbers grow. That's when the growth goes. And that's when a whole series of organizations such as the Islamic Society of North America, ISNA, the Islamic Circle of North America, ICNA, the uh, Muslim Association of Canada, all these organizations started to get formed and started really going. There was a lot of internal struggles with them in the 1980s and into the 1990s as they tried to decide, are they going to stay below the ground? and sort of operate in secret, or they come above the ground and operate openly. Because in the Middle East, of course, to come above ground quite often meant getting wiped out. But in North America, they realized they're operating in a different environment. So they decided to go with front groups, uh, and these front groups literally exploded sort of into the 1990s. And then since then, they've had uh, incredible growth, incredible influence. They're in the hallways of government now. They've got members of parliament, Congress people, that sort of stuff. Uh, operating on their behalf. So yeah, they've been quite successful. But again, starts in 1958, struggles through the 60s, 70s, forms itself in the 80s, and then really gets rocking since then. There are uh, U.S. and Canadian investigations of various terror groups and in, in, uh, on the North American soil. What are some of these groups that have been officially banned or listed or blacklisted or something? What are some of these groups? Yeah, if you look at the blacklisting or banning or that sort of thing, the United Arab Emirates uh, put out a thing about three or four years ago, uh, and it was their government's assessment of Muslim Brotherhood front groups around the world, the ones that were really effective, the ones that had a lot of money. And in the United States, they picked out uh, CARE USA, the Council on American-Islamic Relations of the United States, and the MAS, the Muslim American Society. And when they were challenged on that and people said, hey, you know, Care USA has never blown anything up. They say, no, uh, they're not a terrorist group in the sense that they've got guns and bombs in the basement. They are a front group, a proxy group, a fundraising group, a lobby group for what they regard as uh, what will ultimately become a form of terrorism. So that's been sort of uh, openly identified in the Middle East uh, within America itself. Groups like ISNA and Care USA have been identified in terrorism funding trials. If you want to take a look at that, go back and look at the Holy Land Relief terrorism funding trial in America. And the judges who were involved in that made a number of statements about how these were front groups for uh, Hamas, how they're doing fundraising for Hamas, etc., etc. Here in Canada, we had one called IRFAN, the International Relief Foundation for the Afflicted and Needy. And even when this thing was set up, there were a lot of questions raised about who was on the board, who they were working for, uh, how they'd already been doing some fundraising for Hamas. But nonetheless, it got registered as a charity in Canada. Uh, the government eventually, many years later, I think in about 2011, yanked its charitable status and said, you can't be a charity anymore. You can't issue tax receipts anymore because you're funding terrorism with the money, and it was millions of dollars they'd identified that had gone to Hamas and other areas. Now, interesting enough, they kept right on going anyway without the charitable status, and then the government of Canada declared them to be a terrorist group in 2014, and that shut them down. To just close off one last example, we talked a little bit about Kashmir. Uh, in both Canada and America, there's something called ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America. The one here in Canada, which operates out of Mississauga, which is essentially a suburb of Toronto, uh, they got busted, I think, now three times for funding terrorism. And their so-called development foundation 
was found to be raising money here, mostly in Canada, and then shipping that money off to Kashmir to advance the cause of terrorist groups there. So the government of Canada identified that as a terrorist funding outfit and shot that down for a while. Excellent. This is very interesting. So, you know, I want my viewers to know that just because a certain organization sounds peaceful, diplomatic, and they're raising money in the guise of helping schools and all that, doesn't mean that they are not terrorists. They may yep. be a front organization. There is, that's the soft power of the terrorist people. They want to, they, they, they do a lot of things. They have, uh, in fact, I want to ask you, uh, I want to ask you, what do you think of Al Jazeera? as a kind of, is it a genuinely moderate group or is it aligned with some of these groups or is it kind of ambiguous? Yeah, let me just pick up on that word moderate to start with and then we'll move to Al Jazeera after that. One of the problems we have with politicians in Canada, America, Europe, and increasingly in South and Central America is they say, oh, we want to deal with moderate Islam. So if somebody says they're going to blow something up, they say, oh, we're not going to deal with those guys. But yet they turn right around and they deal with a whole bunch of uh, Hizbut Tahrir. They deal with Muslim Brotherhood front groups. They deal with Jami Islamiyah front groups. Uh, and they're sort of divided in between the violent and the moderate factions. And how you should actually think about that is the violent factions and the not yet violent factions. So Good. Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, knows enough when it's operating in America, Canada, the United Kingdom, you shouldn't blow stuff up because that will bring the authorities down on you really hard. But you build your power, you expand your base, you spread your influence, and then when you feel you're strong enough, that's when you take over. So for instance, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, when they took over, went from being the sort of moderate, fuzzy, look at us, we're, we're modern Muslims going to form a government. And yet, yes, less than a year later, they'd actually crushed the press, they'd crushed the military, they'd crushed any opposition uh, in an incredibly violent activity, and then their own people threw them out. But you should think about them as moderate, actually in this case means not yet violent, as opposed to not violent. Now, to look at Al Jazeera, in fairness to Al Jazeera, when it got started uh, by Qatar back a bunch of years ago, it was actually a reasonable sort of international agency, and it was reasonably reliable to listen to as long as you weren't listening to what was going on in Qatar, because that's where it was hosted, and they didn't say a lot bad about Qatar, because that's where they were. But other than that, it was like listening to Xinhua in China. Xinhua is okay to listen to as long as you don't listen to the reports on China, because that's where they're hosted. Now... In about 2007, 2008, 2009, huge changes occur in Qatar. There is uh, a new leader of the royal family, and they decide to not only just support extremist Islam, in fact, they make it a national priority. So what was once a relatively reasonable news agency, Al Jazeera, has now become little more than a mouthpiece from the Muslim Brotherhood over the last sort of 10, 12 years kind of a thing, uh, to a point where a bunch of their staff in Qatar actually quit en masse and just said, look, we can't work for Al Jazeera anymore because we're tired of being a front group for the Muslim Brotherhood. We don't want to be a mouthpiece for the Muslim Brotherhood anymore. So unfortunately, Al Jazeera has gone from sort of a quasi-reliable uh, and interesting uh, Middle Eastern-based service to being not much more than the propaganda arm of the government of Qatar, which is wholly committed to supporting the Muslim Brotherhood in North America, Europe, South Asia, etc., etc. So you mentioned Qatar. Now, Tur uh, Turkey, Iran, Pakistan seem to be in alliance. 
regardless of Shia Sunni divides, they seem to be coming together in many ways, and also Qatar and perhaps Malaysia. So, what, yes. can you explain what is the dynamic of this kind of a new group challenging Saudi, what they would consider Saudi domination of Islam? Uh, so, is, how, how is this happening? Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things at play here. I've watched people actually testify in the American Congress that, oh, the Shia and the Sunni can't work together because they're lifelong enemies and they kill each other, etc. And that's just blatantly false. Uh, they do, on occasion, kill each other in large numbers. That's for sure. But on other occasions, they're perfectly capable of working together. So when the Egyptian government uh, was taken over by the Muslim Brotherhood, one of the first things they did was they called uh, General Soleimani from the uh, from the Al-Quds Force, from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, to come to Egypt to help them set up a new parallel intelligence service, which they were going to use to crush internal opposition. And of course, Soleimani is like a hardcore Shia, and the Muslim Brotherhood is hardcore Sunni. But they're capable of working together. We saw the same thing in uh, Sudan. And interesting enough, it was observed up close firsthand in Bosnia when Ali Itzabagevich, who's an ex-Brotherhood guy, got in trouble when he declared the independence of Bosnia, but then wasn't able to defend it at all. And the first foreigners to come in to help him are actually Revolutionary Guards guys. We saw them in the Sarajevo airport in 1992. That's how soon those guys showed up. So the Shi and Sunni are perfectly capable of working together. And I would argue the sort of more extremist the nature of the organization, the more likely they are to be able to work together. Uh, Osama bin Laden said the same thing before he got uh, sort of wiped out in Afghanistan, That, uh, or his forces got wiped out in Afghanistan. Uh, he said at a certain point, they're going to have to learn to work with groups like Hezbollah. So there's that. So what we're seeing right now is Qatar looks down at nose at the Saudis. They look at them as a rabbling bunch. They dislike them greatly. And their public argument is the Saudis have done a lousy job representing Sunni Islam, and they do a lousy job as custodians of the, the two holy mosques, Mecca and Medina. Qatar has decided, given its huge budget surplus based on natural gas, that it wants to be the leading Middle Eastern power in demonstrating how only they are the true supporters of Islam around the world. And they've entered into this alliance with Iran. They've entered into this alliance with Turkey, where they're putting huge amounts of money into Erdogan's government in Turkey. Uh, and they've also entered into this alliance with Pakistan and with Malaysia, the other group uh, joining this, as you noted. The last meeting, Pakistan wasn't there because the Saudis outrightly threatened them and said any money they get would disappear. Uh, but it's clear that Pakistan's moving that direction. It's also clear that Qatar is putting huge amounts of money into places like India, uh, into the Kashmir itself, into Pakistan, etc. So you're seeing this uh, extremist, Islamist alliance growing. And it's, it's almost weird in a sense. Very few people are paying attention to it because Turkey's moving into Syria, albeit in a disastrous kind of way. Turkey's moving into Libya. Uh, Qatar is buying off places like Brookings Institute in uh, D.C. has long ago been bought off by Qatar. Uh, and very few people are watching this new alliance. And it's incredible, given the billions of dollars that are going into it, which are then being spread around countries uh, around uh, North and South America, uh, Europe and South Asia. You know, there was a time when Saudi was funding most of these intellectual places in the Western world and uh, radicalizing or supporting people who were radicals. But I get the impression that that is now more the case with Qatar. 
that Qatar is out there funding a whole lot of these kind of places rather than Saudi Arabia. What are your views on that? Yeah, it was fascinating. If you looked even 10, 12 years ago and said, you know, where is the money coming from internationally into cultural centers in Ottawa, Washington, New York, uh, you know, San Francisco, Vancouver, whatever. Uh, most of the time you would have identified Saudi Arabia as one of the leading uh, countries. Also, to a certain degree, Kuwait has been a heavy funder of uh, a bunch of extremist organizers, both on the government level and at the, the individual level. And uh, now what you're seeing very much is that position has been taken over by Qatar. So if you were going to, you know, the old question, if you're going to take one country and cut out the funding, which one you pick? Most people would probably pick Saudi Arabia, but I would say 10 years ago that was true. Now I would say cut out Qatar. That is the biggest single problem in terms of the number of projects they're sponsoring, in terms of the number of countries they're infiltrating, and in terms of the sheer money they're putting into it. Yeah, and my information suggests that in India, Qatar is heavily invested and through lots of organizations, and the Indian government is not really taken that seriously because they are not sort of very in the face. Yeah, I think the Indian government has over the last, difficult to say, sort of like two or three years, I think there's sort of a, a gradual awakening that they've got a problem. And of course, the recent riots there over the last few weeks have kind of brought the problem home. But yeah, India, like many other countries, observed this going on and said, well, you know, they're not actually blowing anything up, so let's not, let's not cause any problems. And of course, what they were doing was they were allowing the extremism to take root uh, in areas like Kerala, in areas like Kashmir and all over India. We have a project right now that's just sort of getting to the concluding stages, uh, but we're looking at uh, documents which will show how much money Qatar has been putting into Pakistan, India, Kashmir, Canada, uh, Germany, France, etc., etc., that sort of thing. And in the South Asian area, which is to say India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, the Kashmir zone, stuff like that, it's not tens of projects, it's not dozens, it's hundreds and thousands, and sometimes it's thousands and thousands of projects that the government of Qatar is funding in South Asia. And strangely enough, if you look at where we're seeing the money go to the projects, and then you take another step back and you look at where the extremism is spreading the quickest, it's the same areas. Uh, so Qatar is not only pouring the money in, I would argue, in fact, they're being effective as well. So when your report is ready, we'll have you back and we'll dis discuss your report. Because I think the, date, the data you're putting together is going to be very important. Yes, it's interesting. We sort of... I wouldn't say stumbled over, but we were able to turn up uh, a funding trail for much of what Qatar is doing, uh, and it's been very helpful. And I should say there's actually two projects going on here, one of which is mine, one of which isn't. Uh, on a larger scale, there's something called Qatar Papers. If you go into Google or if you go into Amazon and just type in Qatar Papers, what you're going to find is a book and a whole series of uh, newspaper articles on how something called Qatar Charity has been funding Muslim Brotherhood institutions only in Germany, France, Belgium, uh, Sweden, Norway, Canada, America, that sort of stuff. I just happen to have the Qatar papers for Canada that shows how they're funding eight main uh, mosques here in Canada. I know someone in the United States has them for America, and then there's a bunch of papers for France. So there is a book out there called Qatar Papers. It's worth looking at. That's being generated mostly by two journalists in France who are sort of the key recipients of all those documents, which were either smuggled out of uh, Qatar or they were uh, leaked out of Qatar by an insider. Uh, so that's one project. My project, on the other hand, is looking at E-Charity, which is another Qatar-based charity. 
So there's the two. There's Qatar Charity, which is already sort of publicly known. It's funding Muslim Brotherhood projects only, and it's mostly in sort of like Europe and North America. And then there's E-Charity is another big Qatari government charity, and it's funding projects literally all over the place, not just Europe and North America, but also heavily, as I mentioned, in uh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, uh, and also into South America, uh, or sorry, into Africa as well. Lots of funding in, uh, South, in Africa as well. Given all this, why do many politicians in Western countries pander to the Islamists? Why do politicians in India? What do you think is the blind spot? Do they not know or is there some reason that they want to kind of appease these people? I think there's a number of things at work. The first is Muslim Brotherhood front groups, uh, Hizbut Tahrir, uh, groups that are front groups for uh, Jama Islamiyah, for instance, have been very intelligent in the way they've approached the problem. They'll go in and set up a cultural center. It becomes a mosque. The next thing you know, they got a school. Uh, they hire some lobbyists. They approach the government. And then they quietly tell the government and say, look, we are the voice of the Muslim community. If you want to communicate with the Muslim community, you sort of have to talk to us because we, we read the ground. We know what's going on. Now, the reality is they don't represent that much of the Muslim community, but they are organized. They're well-funded. Uh, anytime you see Muslim Brotherhood people on TV, they're always like uh, well-turned out, shaved beards, nice suits, good haircuts, all that sort of stuff. Very professional sounding. And they've been able to convince many governments in Canada, America, Britain, India, wherever, that you know only they represent the true voice of the Muslim community and you can only talk to them. And in exchange, they said, look, we'll deliver the Muslim block. We'll, we'll get you the voters on the issues when you need it. So part of it is just sheer skill and organization on their part. Another part, of course, is generally speaking, Western politicians, and I'll try and be polite here, but at the current moment, the crop of Western politicians running the G20, shall we say, aren't necessarily the smartest people on the face of the planet. Most of them are experts in getting elected. That's what they do. They're not necessarily students of history. They don't run large organizations. They've never been through a war. And quite frankly, they're not that bright, most of them. So that's a real problem. Another issue we've got concurrent with all that is this whole sort of postmodernism, political correctness, uh, and radical Islamist, political Islam, has made it an absolute requirement that you can't say anything bad about Islam, because if you do, oh my God, you're Islamophobic, and that is just absolutely terrible. Uh, and they've put that to a point where it's become most politicians will talk about, you know, stuff until you say the word Islam and then they run the other direction. They're just so terrified of being called racist or Islamophobic. They don't mind being called crooks, thieves. Yeah, OK, whatever. But as soon as you say, oh, my God, you're racist or Islamophobic, they just fall apart and they lose all their courage and they literally run away from the issue. So that's kind of a, a real big problem. Uh, and the other thing is uh we're seeing this. I think you see it in India. We're seeing it in the United Kingdom or right now. It's big in Canada. It's this so-called red-green alliance that we sometimes call it. The yes. Islamist, call it cultural Marxist, call it socialist, call it communist, whatever label you want to put on these folks. The progressive left, I guess, is what it would be called in the West. Um, interesting enough, you would think they wouldn't have a lot in common, given that Islam is founded on a religion. The Islamists are founded on a religion. And of course, your hardcore communists, your Naxalites, your Trotskyites, whatever, all disavow religion entirely. Um, but they share a number of common attributes. They're anti-democratic, both of them. Both of them are collectivist. Uh, they believe that only the collective should be able to rule and the individual has no rights whatsoever. Both of them are anti-free speech. 
uh, because both of them realize their ideology cannot withstand an attack in a free speech environment because their ideologies are both so horrible that when you break them down and expose them, you know, it becomes obvious just how bad they are. So both of them are anti-free speech. Uh, Both of them operate with the sort of idea that you build your strength, you expand your forces, you work your way into schools, universities, government, whatever. And then when you get a chance to get into power, you take it and then you clamp down, i.e. one election, one time, as they say. Uh, So however you get to power, they say is great. You can do it democratically. You can do it through a coup. You can do it through infiltration. But once you're in power, that's when you take total control and then you crush everyone else. I find this kind of amusing, especially for the lefties and the progressives. And not all lefties are bad. I, I talk to a lot of lefties and, uh, you know, a lot of them are like truly good people. But you always tell them and say, look, remember, when the Islamists get into power, the first thing they're going to do is wipe out those people who they regard as the most dangerous to their ongoing power. And they always go, oh, yeah, right wing fascists. It's like, no. When the Iranian Khomeinis got into power, as soon as they were established, they turned around and killed about 30,000 of the leftists who helped them get into power, who helped them get rid of the Shah. So as much as there is this red-green alliance, uh, and as much as it's real and they cooperate with each other, the reality is that the one of the day, one will wipe out the other. And I would argue most of the time when the Islamists get into power, they wipe out the progressive lefties. So they're both forces that want to disrupt, torpedo, and dismantle the existing world order, civilized yes. world order. And each is, has its own ideology. So it's a, it's a marriage of convenience because they've got a common enemy. But when they have managed to get rid of the established order, then usually they fight each other. And usually it's Islam that defeats the left. I mean, that's really the case. Islam is stronger in the sense that uh, they have an international backing. They have more funding. Uh, The left is sort of, uh, you know, while it is also an international movement, but they don't have institutions of power. They don't have the equivalent of mosques and money and oil money and all of that. So in a a situation where the rest of the power groups are out and only the Muslim, the Islamists are left and the leftists are left, my sense is that these Islamists will win. Yeah, they're more aggressive. They've got a harder attitude. They tend to be a little less intellectual uh, than the the ideological left. They, they're brutal. They can use brute force much more easily. Yes, they're much more. They're they're clearly adapted to the idea of using violence when necessary. Now there are people. Uh, there have been people in the Muslim Brotherhood movement, Syed Qutb, for instance, uh, who says you should go violent early as soon as you have any structure at all, any power at all. That's when you turn violent. And then, of course, at the extreme outside of the Islamist movement, you've got groups like Al-Qaeda, groups like Al-Nusra, or you've got ISIS, for instance, which their, their answer to every question is violence. They're not a measured outfit at all. Whatever, they, whatever the question is, their answer is kill it, destroy it, smash it. So all of, the, all of these groups, like you said, have the same general ideology, collectivist, globalist, anti-capitalist, anti-democratic, anti-free speech. Uh, they're all completely misogynist to a degree, which is stunning. Uh, and yeah, at the end of the day, they're both looking to create their own caliphate, if you would, uh, although, the, although the lefties would hate that term. But anyway. So let's take the word caliphate. Uh, it's not found in the Quran. So what is, what is the origin of the caliphate and what do you think its relationship with Quran and the rest of the whole Islamic uh, movement? 
Yeah, it's if you're going to run an ideology of any sort, or if you're going to run a sovereign country, you need a certain degree of mythology, a certain set of belief systems. And in the minds of the Islamists, the the extremist political Islam, they always talk about a return to caliphate, the growth of the caliphate, etc. And they sort of refer back to this mythical time when the caliphate ran from what we would now call Spain to Indonesia, which, of course, it never did. There never was a caliphate that ran all the way from Spain over to Indonesia. Now, there were different Islamic empires at different times which controlled Spain and what we would now call southern Italy, or they controlled North Africa, they controlled what we would now call Syria and most of the Middle East. And yes, they did go right through India and down into parts of Indonesia at some time. But there never was a global caliphate. That's a complete myth. Now, what's even more interesting is you mentioned the word caliphate itself and a description of how a caliphate should operate is not in the Koran. It's literally not there. The root word for caliphate shows up in the Koran twice, but it's not referring to a system of government at the time. So this whole idea of... Uh, like we have the Islamic Society of North America here say, oh, it's normal to want Sharia. It's normal to want caliphate. And the answer is, no, it's not. It's not in the Quran. It is, however, very much in Hadith, uh, and especially those who were written 200 years or more after the death of the Prophet. So when you hear a variety of people who are heading up, uh, you know, an Al-Qaeda group or an Al-Nusra group or Abu Sayyaf or Boko Haram or whatever, They're always sort of making these learned quotations about caliphate, but start watching and you'll notice all of them come from Hadith, all of them come from later days of Hadith, and very little of it is based on Koran. So, in fact, it's a myth which they've propagated to such an extent that a lot of Westerners actually believe that, oh, yeah, you know, there is such a thing in Islamic caliphate. Uh, But again, like I said, it's not actually there in the Koran, which can get you in a lot of trouble in a lot of countries, not even allowed to say that. Which kind of brings us to another point. If there is going to be a reformation of Islam, as some people talk about, or a modernization, or if there is going to be a move to take Islam back to the Koran and get away from all the hadith that were written later years, the intellectual leadership is going to have to come from either from the West or from someplace like India, where they actually have free speech. Because to have this conversation that you and I are having in Saudi Arabia, or in Pakistan, or in parts of Kashmir, or in Kuwait or Qatar would get us both killed. And if if we were Muslims and having this conversation, you'd be killed for sure. So ironically, if there is going to be a, a modern modernist future for Islam, it's going to be have to be led by countries that actually have rough democracies, free speech, and that sort of stuff. And that's India, Europe, and North America sort of a thing. So, you know, Article 370 Kashmir thing, uh, I'm a full supporter of what the government did, the government of India did because there was no sense in letting this ambiguity continue. And if you look at the history of Kashmir, it's been a Shavite place, it's it's been a Hindu place for thousands of years, and only in recent centuries encroached gradually, first peacefully and then with more and more hard power. So it it was time, and then it became a hotbed for Pakistan to send their mischief makers, their terrorists, and and start disrupting, and a base for them to act and take uh, actions in the rest of India. So it, it, it was a very important move, a move that should have been made a long time ago. Uh, what are your thoughts on this whole Article 370 and Kashmir, uh, you know, as, uh, because it's a matter of controversy. So I've told you where I'm coming from, but I'd like to hear what's your take on it. Yeah. When I look at the world, because I'm ex-military and ex-intelligence, you know, we love maps. We, le- tend- we love to look at geostrategic uh, issues. Uh, From the point of view of Kashmir and the degree to which radical Islam exists there, 
Uh, it's worth noting, that, as you mentioned, Pakistan is putting a bunch of money in there. The country of Qatar is pouring a ton of money into that area. Uh, and what they're looking at is they don't actually care about Kashmir one way or the other. Uh, it's not their historical territory, and they don't give a damn one way or the other about the average Kashmiri that happens to live there, be he historically uh, pandit, uh, Hindu, uh, Muslim, or whatever. What they do see, however, is Kashmir is the entryway to India. So a number of the Islamist groups that operate there under the shadow of or under the influence of Jam Islamiya sort of say, look, first we get Kashmir, then we're into India, and then we take Delhi. So from my point of view, from a geostrategic point of view, from a military intelligence point of view, Kashmir is the weak spot that Qatar and uh, Pakistan and others are pushing on with the idea of driving down into India. So uh, it has to be seen by the Indian government as hostile territory where they need to act clearly and act decisively. So uh, what they did with the, uh, the changing of the article there, I kind of look at it and go, yeah, I mean, to me, it was almost uh, logical and, if anything, somewhat overdue. But, you know, they need to take uh, a lot stronger action because ca- the problem with Kashmir is not Kashmir. The problem with Kashmir is all of northern India. Yeah, I agree. So um, we could go on. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff to talk about. And we will come back uh, and have some more discussions uh, in, the, in the next days and weeks. But I want to thank you for this. I think this is a very insightful Uh, to the point, direct, no nonsense. I like the way you give straight answers and no trying to be covering and being politically correct. Uh, Thank you very much, Tom. And when your papers do come out, the papers on what Qatar is up to, let me know. And even before that, would love to have you back. Thanks very much, Rajiv. It was great being here. Namaste.